Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 646th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. I am here with Bill McDormand. Welcome, Bill. Hello, everybody. We've been doing these chats. I saw a list of these chats for like four years. I just love them. Thank you so much. Wow. Right? You can do that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I'm in the process of updating all of our Seed School online stuff, and which you can find at seedschoolonline.com, and all the coursework. And you know, there is an amazing amount of content in there for seeds. Yes, you know, between our Seed Up events that we've done, and Seed School, and special events, and chats, and all the stuff that we've done that we've done, that is probably the most amount of content anybody has up online on seed saving i would bet and what's more important and i was thinking about this this morning is that you can have all the content in the world and we've all and bell was talking about this this morning she's trying to read this 450 page book uh-huh and she and it's a great idea i won't go i won't give the title of the book because i'm going to be critical but she's just bogging down it's just going into more and more content you know, and she's lost the spirit and the story, even the reason to read mm-hmm. it. So you can have all the content in the world, but if you don't meet the listener or the reader part way and keep yep. attention and talk about what's really, really important to them, it's just not going to be there. Right. And so I would have to say that the content that we've developed is definitely on the end of the spectrum where it's compelling, if not just all important. And that just came from experience. How many years you've been sitting there doing that at the urban farm? <laughs> oh, how long have I lived here at the urban farm? Yeah, yeah. 30, 32 years. 32 years. Yeah, I just passed course. 32 years on the first you've weekend been, of October. You've been teaching courses and learning what an audience wanted to listen to and getting feedback and questions for 32 mm-hmm. years. That makes a huge difference. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that greatly. So we are here tonight and this, the thank you, Ms. Bell. I know she's not out there listening, but she'll get this ethereally. Thank you, Ms. Bell. 
She sent this over. This is called Loving Those Legumes. Beans and peas are great to eat and also great for your soil. Incorporating them into your garden rotation is smart and delicious. Pollinators also love legumes, so it's a win-win all the way around. Plant them along a wall or a fence for a beautiful display of cascading leaves and fruit for easy picking. There's so much to love about legumes. Wow, that was a great write-up. She's getting better. Yeah. <laughs> and so, she was already great. <laughs> what let's start with what is a legume, Bill? Well, I, you know, there's probably all sorts of scientific ways of, of dividing up the plant kingdom. But mm-hmm. back in the day when I was studying botany and taxonomy, especially, which is the study of how to divide up the plant kingdom and give it mm-hmm. names, leguminosae was one of the family names. Oh, yes. Lovingly called the pea family. And it is characteristic of a certain kind of, uh, what did they call it? Um, Pod? Asymmetrical flower shape. Oh, okay. That then turns into a seed producing mechanism. That's a pot, a pea pot or a bean pot. It's familiar. We're all familiar with it. So almost all the plants that produce those kinds of pots, peas in a pot, and they don't have to be long. They can be round. There's a whole wing of the leguminosae that have round pots. And we, you see those in weeds sometimes. Um, fan weed is a big one. Mm-hmm. With the lapsi is the genus that we used to get. Silicles or siliques. That was the, the botanical definition. So anyway, that's the, the legumes are lovingly in that family. But they have another characteristic. And that is they form along the roots, nodes form usually. Uh-huh. That form a with a symbiotic relationship with bacteria in the soil that can actually then fix nitrogen to your soil, and this is so for those of us that started gardening a long time ago, we thought, oh, this is a shortcut way to get nitrogen and other maybe other nutrients into our soil is that we can just grow these other plants and they'll feed the soil. And so when John Jevons wrote his book, and you've interviewed John, he divided the garden vegetables into heavy feeders, things that just take a huge amount of minerals and life energy and nitrogen out of the soil, like corn. Mm-hmm. And then those things that just kind of, they don't take a lot out, but they're just kind of medium. And then there were the heavy feeders and the legumes were in the heavy feeder category because of this nitrogen fixing. And it can actually make a huge difference in what you're doing. And so I think what Bell was referring to were rotations, right? So as soon as you get done growing a crop, rule number one, especially here in the arid west, should be to never leave your soil open to the sun for very long. My 120 degree day in the summer can just cook all the life out of your soil. Go ahead. Yeah. So 120 degree day can net you 150 degree temperatures at ground level. Yeah. And one of the things that I discovered a few years ago is that underneath my sweet potatoes and cow peas, a legume, in you know, in the front yard of the urban farm, it was like 89 degrees. It was like 50 to 60 degrees cooler under the ground cover. See, that's the difference between having your soil in your yard and having it in your oven. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. To sterilize it. Yeah. And it's life energy you want. And so legumes are perfect. And lots of times it's say if you're growing grains, heritage and ancient grains, the way I am now, you plant those legumes before you harvest. So they come up. So the, the grains start coming up and they're shading your soil. 
right? And then, say a month to six weeks before you harvest your grains, you go ahead and plant all your legumes in, and they start coming up. And so the day you cut your grains down, it's all covered with beautiful green, and they start to get maximum sun. So that's wow. kind of one of the strategies here. So legumes, I just looked it up on the internet. Okay. The legume family consists of plants that produce a pod with seeds inside. The term legume is used to describe the seeds of these plants. Common edible legumes include lentils, peas, chickpeas, beans, soybeans, and peanuts. Interesting. Peanuts is a underground harvested nut legume. The different types vary greatly in nutrition, appearance, taste, and use. Yeah, that's our way of saying that we just haven't even started trying to figure out all this stuff that nature does. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we as professor and say, well, there's a lot of them out there. <laughs> well, and we mentioned Toby earlier before we started this call and loved what he used to say. He used to say, nature always bats last. Yeah, especially during baseball season. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, I, this is our uh, nod to being more humble and trying to learn. Yeah. to watch what's going on more. So one of the things that, so I just, I, I'm not going to say a lot about legumes, all great civilizational agricultures that grew grains had a rotation in them with some sort of a leguminous plant. For us, lupin plants are poisonous. They have too much oxalic acid in them, among other things, mm -hmm. so that we don't eat lupins. But somewhere we don't know how far long ago, down in the Andes, the Incas or their predecessors figured out in their rotation how to use lupin, which are a legume. You see the little pea pods on lupin plants. And they actually domesticated it and uh, selected an edible version. And so this was like, this is, this is smart farming, right? You're right. actually planning it to cover your soil, to put the nitrogen in so your grain will grow. But then somebody figured out how to select that long enough so they could eat the peas and pods off their mm -hmm. lupins. And so some version of that's been taking place since the Fertile Crescent, probably. Wow. So this is part and parcel of what farming means to most farmers. Mm -hmm. That is the dominant if you really want to get into it, that's the dominant rotation in world agriculture right now. We've monocropped the planet with corn and soybeans. And the reason they plant soybeans is that they're nitrogen fixers and they can get a bean off it. In the beginning, they didn't even want the bean for edibility. They wanted it because they could crush it, get the oil out and sell it to this crazy guy named Henry Ford. Oh my was, gosh. Use it to paint his these crazy things called cars. That's really what propelled the whole soybean industry in the beginning was for the oil that they put in the paint to paint cars. Oh my gosh. Wow. And there's the people that would argue that it's still not very edible. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's not. That is for sure. I have that kind of a thing going on in my front yard, a rotation. And it's not anything that I planned. I didn't do this on purpose. So what happens for me is, you know, it's just starting to get cold here in Phoenix now. And what happens for me is that the cowpeas, which have been growing like mad all summer, are starting to die back. And what pokes up between them are nasturtiums. Wow. Yeah. And it's just automatically, I think this goes back 30 years to when I first bought the place, my uh, beloved 
Michelle, who is no longer with us, loved nasturtiums and she planted them widely in our front yard. And they just come back year after year. And they're a winter crop and the cowpeas are a summer crop. So they worked it out. Yeah. Right. They take over and it happens naturally. And it happens naturally. Wow. And you just sit back. Was that? You just sit back and watch it. And And I just sit back and watch it. You know, I was recently on with Zach Lokes. Dirk Lokes was my, this was a real fun story. Dirk Lokes was one of my permaculture design course teachers back in 1991. Wow. Right. That goes back 30 years. Is that before the Civil War? (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. And so I get this email from a publishing house about this book that Zach Lokes is putting out. And I said, it couldn't be. So I get him on the phone. We've had a bunch of chats. And I said, hey, is your dad Dirk? And he said, yeah, he is. It's like, how cool is that? Well, Zach is doing this huge permaculture project up in Canada. And he introduced me to something called an old growth food forest. I just heard about this. Yeah. Food forest. What a great idea. I know, right? I'm getting chills sharing it. And it's and it's really just letting things be in our space. You know, uh, for for us here at the Urban Farm, there is always multiple things to eat in the yard. It just grows. It grows year after year after year. So I let them go to seed. And mm-hmm. the cow peas, I probably planted the cow peas maybe 15 years ago. They came from a packet. They were the Rio Red cow pea. They came mm-hmm. from a packet at Native Seed Search, maybe even while you were there, probably while you were there. And I just spread up, you know, a small little packet in the front yard. And mm-hmm. every... I know every year I get literally pounds and pounds of cow peas. Yeah. And I recently I had somebody tell me that they took a cup of them and they boiled them. They actually boiled them and they said they tasted really good. So you're not eating them. No. What I do with them, <laughs> what I do, because the, the pods are, you know, if you get the pods when they're small, they're, right. they're edible ish. Right. Ish. Ish. But yeah. once they get big, they get pithy and hard and, you know, there's... No, I get them. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, right. No. So what I do with them is I package them up and I give them away at our fruit tree program. Right. For, people, for, under the- for underneath the trees. Exactly. Right. So we're primarily using the cow peas for shade. And fixing nitrogen. And fixing that's nitrogen. They're a legume. And that's what we were talking about. But yeah. so, but there's a long tradition of eating them like beans, correct? And that's what somebody did. They boiled them up and ate them like beans, the dried right. ones. Yeah. The dried beans, yeah. yeah. No, there's black-eyed pea recipes, if I'm not right. mistaken. Well, and apparently cow peas are kind of in that same family. Yeah, exactly. Depends on whether you're a sheep man or a cow man. <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. All right. So what questions do you all have for us? Shoot us your questions. What else you got for us, Bill? Well, I, you know, this idea of an old growth food forest mm-hmm. is really amazing because, you know, most of what we're doing, and if you're, if you're gardening, is that we're just butchering things. Understood. You know, so, so anytime you disturb soil, whether you're you know, tur- lightly fluffing it with a fork the way John Jevons does mm-hmm. you know, without trying to turn it over, no till or whatever. But anytime you're putting in plants and taking them out and doing stuff, 
you know, you're disturbing your soil. And anytime you disturb the soil, you start in some senses, a new plant succession. Nature's got this intelligence, right? Right. So there, there are plants that thrive in that pioneer phase, we call it. And we call those plants the pioneers. Unfortunately, those are mostly weeds. They know right. they're the, they take advantage of this and yeah. they find these spaces and they come in. And so we're, the more we work our soil and the more we really try to garden, actually what we're doing is setting up more conditions for more weeds and more work. It's like, you know, I call this painting the roses red, you know, from Alice in Wonderland. Oh yeah. Like, Why are you painting the roses red? Aren't they beautiful? White, you know, it's like the soil is building itself. Why are you always messing it up? And so the idea of an old growth forest is that a succession takes place. And in Idaho, when, where I was really trying to figure this out for the first time in the desert of Idaho, it was more than 100 years, maybe 200 years of naturally slowly changing soil buildup mm -hmm. for a plant succession to get to old growth again, whether it burned or it was overgrazed or it was dug up. When people opened up that Pandora's box, they were gonna have to wait a long time. And so this idea of having an old growth food, food forest is kind of just letting it mature and disturbing the soil less and less and getting more perennial things or things like you're doing where annuals are acting perennially, right? They're right. themselves and adapting every year to what just you're like doing. they do in a forest. Yeah. So uh, that's really that's, you know, I'm sitting here outside tonight looking at my garden going, yeah, I had 12 foot tall. Jerusalem artichokes this year. Oh, isn't that amazing? That's a food forest. <laughs> that's, that's a food forest. You know, I had something really amazing happen with Jerusalem artichokes. People aren't familiar with what they are. And so, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I had this buddy of mine that would come in twice a year and I'd pay him a hundred bucks and he would just come in and he would plant things around the yard. Uh -huh. And I'm going to say about 15 years ago, I had a woofer and WOOFER is an acronym, W-W-O-O-F, and it stands for Willing Workers on Organic Farms. There's a podcast on it on urbanfarmpodcast.org. But basically, they're volunteers that come in and work. And I told her to go work, clean out a bed in the back because I wanted to plant it. And back there were these sunflowers that were at least 15 feet tall. Right. And when she started digging, she came up with a 15-gallon tree tub of sunchokes or Jerusalem artichokes. Right. Now, they're not artichokes like you would expect. These no. actually grow underground. They're called sunchokes. They look like sunflowers. And right. they the plants are sunflowers, right? Yeah. They're sunflowers that produce tubers. And the sense. tubers look like little potatoes. They're kind of scraggly, more like ginger. Right. You know, but you know, they, they just, again, they just grow wild in the yard. They come back year after year. Well, it's not that they grow in wild. What happens is if you leave any tuber in there at all, right. it divides and starts new plants. Yeah. So it's this like perennially self-replicating system in your soil. And so Joseph Lofthouse was really interesting. He said that they have been developed and selected for that characteristic for so long that they've actually, a lot of them have lost the ability to produce seeds, that you don't get a lot of seeds on the sunflowers. It just doesn't matter to the plants anymore to be able to do that. And what he's oh, trying to do is get them, he's saving seeds wherever he sees any seeds with them because he wants to get a seed producing sunchoke 
screen going again because then ah. you get, you're rolling dice genetically because they're crossing with each other. Right. More chances for more diversity and yeah. he wants more diversity to adapt to his Utah location. So, wow. Yeah. But I had a- talking about from seed. This is a seed chat. Yes, we brought up legumes, but we're also talking about some other things. So I have a garlic plant. This is its second year that it's come up. And it is across the driveway from any place that I had garlic growing. So this is actually a garlic that a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, planted itself out from seed, which is cool. I hadn't even thought about growing garlic from seed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you don't often see it. Same story. The varieties and strains of garlic that most of us have ever eaten or seen or grown Mm -hmm. have been so selected to produce the way they do with bulbs right? You plant Mm -hmm. one little clove and at the end of the year, you get a bulb. And that's what we do, which is a hugely productive system, but forgot all about it. And a lot of them don't produce seeds. Some of them produce bulb aisles at the top occasionally. Mm -hmm. Some of them flower and produce seeds because alliums, that's that whole family. It's a wild family with all sorts of genetics in it. And so, yeah, it's perfectly natural. I had a guy, Greg, send me garlic grass seeds from Uzbekistan. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's a grass. Gets about this tall. They're like garlic chives kind of thing, but they produce seeds. So he sent me garlic grass seeds. Wow. So that's one end of the spectrum. So if you're growing garlic and onions and these things, do not freak out or actually you should expect surprises like yours. So are you saving seeds from your garlic that started from seeds? See, that's what I want to know. Oh, yeah. I should be watch able to do that this next yeah, season. Watch for it this year. Yeah, I definitely let garlic go to seed. So Christine wants to know, so did, so did the garlic flower and self-seed? I don't know. I'm guessing that's what happened because I yeah. let all my garlic go to seed. You know, right. it puts so, out these beautiful puff flowers that are about this size. All right. So it did produce seeds. And so yeah. and it may not be selfing. Because there's more than one. So the pollen, garlic, you know, onions a lot of times are self-incompatible, a lot of it, but not totally. So or what? They're self-incompatible. Oh. All right. Somewhat. So in other words, they've got a genetic message in them that says, you know, it's probably not a good idea to have the dad and the mom be the same thing. You know, in the end, that's just not going to work out for us. So we want the father to be somebody else. And yeah. so, but it does happen and you can grow plants from that and you can introduce diversity later if you like the traits and what's in there. So, so I would save seeds from that garlic that self-seeded itself at all, that, you know, but I'm an adventurer. I'm not tr- growing garlic or onions for commercial or for production or whatever. I'm growing it for a big adventure and then eating whatever comes up. Eating what comes out, yeah. yeah. Christine also wants to know, do you still harvest the garlic bulb to eat after it flowers? Well, you can, you know, but it's better for soup or something, you know, they can, yeah. it's like all roots after they flower, they start to get woody and hard, Yeah, harder. So you would want to, that's why most people harvest their garlic before. And lots of times, just depends on the variety, but lots of times in where I've lived, it won't flower that year. It'll have to go through a whole new year before. Oh, it right. Yeah. You know, so you don't and have here, to worry about that. Again, it's been selected to do that, but never say never. And here in the low desert, it goes in the ground. We've got garlics popping up. It's mid-October right now, and we've got garlic popping up all over the yard. And, you know, it does its entire life cycle, and the tops die off. They flower and die off in May. 
See, that's so weird. <laughs> it's the heat, well, man. Some garlic needs to, and, and onions need to be vernalized before they flower. In other words, they need to be go through a cold period. Uh, and some varieties are sensitive to different day lengths. Oh, right. Same so with onions. So if you get your garlic up in, you know, northern Idaho or Michigan or Illinois, and you bring it down to Phoenix, it may or may not do what you want it to do anyway. Yeah. Paula says, are the cowpeas the same as black-eyed peas? In zone yes. six, will they die off during the winter or by spring? So in zone nine, where we are, they die off in the winter. So I'm going to indubitably, I don't know where that word came from, say that, yes, they will die off in zone six over the winter, usually by about Thanksgiving. They've already started dying back now. And usually by about Thanksgiving, they've all frozen back. In fact, we just pulled a bunch of them, a huge pile out of our front garden bed where they were growing and hauled them back to the compost bin. I'm going to make compost out of them because I can, <laughs> I can. And there's nitrogen in them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Composting all of that stuff is a good idea. So Joanna says, I have pole beans, but they only have time to get ripe. They never get a chance to dry to become seeds. Can I pick them when they're just ripe and put them on the heat register and dry them out? Will this work? Will the seeds be viable? Having short season limits the seeds you can save. Having short seasons does limit the seeds you can save. So there's a couple of things you can do. One is grow a really, really early variety of pole bean so that it fits within your short season and you have more of a chance for it mm -hmm. to do. You know, I used to sell a blue lake pole bean that was pretty early, but mm -hmm. there are earlier ones. Number two, putting them on the heat register will cook them and probably render them infertile. <laughs> Inviable, uh, inviable, yeah. unviable, whatever it is. So that's not a good idea. The best idea is to wait as long as you can and pull the whole plant with hang the it. pods on it. Okay. Shake the dirt off the roots and hang it up somewhere in your garage or a pantry or a root cellar or somewhere and let them finish drying that way. And that will give you your best shot. Cool. Christine wants to know to plant the cowpea seeds, do I need to wait until the pod dries out? on the plant. Christine, that's what I do here. I harvest them when they're dry on the plant. Generally with the legumes, mm -hmm. you need that pod to dry out. There's very few of them that I've experienced and some of them are horrible. Things like lupin, unless you let them dry all the way out, those seeds just don't seem to be viable. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't, I haven't been around cowpeas as much as you have. So try to let those pods dry as much as you can. And they get to the point where they start to twist and you'll see a crack and they start yep. to open. That's where you want to get them. Cause then if you wait too long and it can even be that day, they'll finish twisting, they'll pop open and your cowpeas will be gone. What's the name of that? There's a name for that. Dehist, D-E-H-I-S-T. That's the general description. Of when of, they explode, right? The seeds. Well, it is an explosion in some, like geraniums, they have a catapult that actually kicks them out. Feet, Interesting. Several yards away from the plant. But yeah, nature's widely is. <laughs> Christine so anyway, says. That's what you want to do. Let them dry out and use that same advice. If you've got them on the vines and they're not dried yet, pull up some of the vines from the ones you want to save seeds from mm -hmm. and let them finish drying that way. 
And if you do that, and you can do it in a paper bag even or something, and they'll finish drying. And then you make sure that you have good seeds and keep your seeds cool, dark, and dry. You yeah. don't want to put them on a register. Cool. Christine says, I planted the seed you gave us in the spring when I picked up my urban farm fruit tree order, and they have protected under my trees all summer, and I'm collecting the next generation of seeds. Thank you, Greg. You bet. Hey, if you want to, bring me a couple of pounds of them. I'll integrate them in with what I've got if you have that many extras. Well, trading diversity, yes. Right? That's what it's about. Yes. Yeah. Is wisteria, Annette wants to know, is wisteria a legume? I have no idea. That's a question for... We did a we did a seed school in Los Angeles, and one of my colleagues said, oh my God, this is where all the house plants grow outside. <laughs> right? It, yeah. Wisteria is in a category of plants I don't know much about. It is. There wisteria, you go. Wisteria is a genus of flowering plants in the legume family, Fabiaceae. There you go. That's also mesquites are in that same family, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Mesquites are nature's answer to overgrazing in Arizona. We overgrazed and totally destroyed the repairing areas all over Arizona. Mm -hmm. And so mesquites have big thorns on them so the cows can't eat them. And they're fixed in nitrogen. They're deep mining minerals. They're getting everything ready to grow and be lush again someday in 100, maybe 200 years. Yeah. Yay. All right. Well, we're 35 minutes in. Do you have any other bright, bright ideas for us to try with legumes? <laughs> well, here's what I, if you want to get up to speed, this is where, I, where I'm going these days, because it's largely because of Joseph Lofthouse. Mm -hmm. I am, so the question is, and so, and I'm still trying to figure out what are the best legumes for me to grow, which, you know, which are the ones that actually grow here the best mm -hmm. with the least amount of energy in my soil without, you know, trying to knock myself out every year with tons of fertilizer or nitrogen or whatever. It's what I've got. Which varieties are the best? What will work best? I still don't know, Greg. And I only have, mm -hmm. I was thinking the other day, I'm going to try to sign a contract with Bell to at least give me eight more years of gardening. Yeah. <laughs> You know, because I'm 70, I, you know, I'll be 75 years old. I mean, how many years can you go out and garden? Wow. And so how do I find it quick? And then let's yeah. interpolate that problem out to society as a whole. We're about to hit a huge supply line disruption in the world's food supply. Oh. We're already seeing parts of it. You know, Big one time. of the container ship gets, you know, sideways in the Suez Canal. I mean, we've got all sorts of things going around these things. And so that's just the way I look at the world. So how do we all find what works best? So I got, and I think they have it at the Experimental Farm Network. You can get some, but they sell Joseph Lofthouse's bean grex. And I think they also have his pea grex. So he spent all this time finding all the different varieties of these things and mixed them all together in a big jumble. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm doing now is I'm planting that out to see what grows here. And only one or two or three of them will be the ones I end up keeping, maybe only one. But how do you find that unless you plant it? Mm -hmm. And this is a way to do that. So I'm planting Grexes with maximum diversity of all the things I can find that are building my soil and fixing nitrogen in the off season from when I'm growing my heritage grains which I can get seven loaves of bread off a hundred square foot bed of my own wheat 
Mm-hmm. I mean, how I many loaves? What's that? How many seven. loaves? Seven. That was uh, Dr. Ralph Bush, who teaches metallurgy at the Air Force Academy in Colorado uh -huh. Springs. And All right. grows his own grains for his own bread and cookies and pies at home. Every year for the Air Force graduates at the Air Force Academy, he takes them all cookies he's baked with wheat he's grown in his own backyard and cleaned and milled and wow. made to cookies. And so he's my inspiration for that. But nice. anyway, so if I had one thing to say on October 18th, 2021, get as much diversity in the leguminosae family as you can and plant it in your yard and save the seeds from the things that work for you best. That's what, that would be my message. So Diane wants to know what is Grex? Because I looked it up. I actually looked up the oh, term. Oh, 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 I love it. <laughs> but the Grex definition is to grumble or complain often shrilly or scoldingly. <laughs> but what's the B definition? There's more than one. I'm looking at the right dictionary now. I looked up. There was more than one. Definition entry two of two measuring unit for fibers, filaments, and yarns based on weight in grams. Okay. Hmm, that's all we got. What's, well, the one that I read said yes. it's, a, it's a combination of disparate things uh, that are brought together. And the first time I heard the word, I'll just give you it. So we're our own tribe in a sense, us per me, you know, yep, put yep. us out to pasture, you know, I have a few decades of making mistakes in our own yards, mm -hmm. enough to be a little bit more humble, hopefully. Right. Right. And so mushroom or Alan, Dr. Alan Capular is the first place I heard that term. And he was a nuclear scientist that got fed up with helping build nuclear missiles and went home to Oregon and started a seed company called Peace Seeds. And you can look that up. His daughter runs the offspring of that company called Peace Seedlings. Mm. And he found out that by mixing two or three of our land race open pollinated varieties, like the ones we have at the Great American Seed Up, and throw a hybrid in that had some disease resistance or other characteristic he likes. He called that a Grex, a disparate group that nobody in the breeding world had ever thought of bringing together and letting them cross, mm -hmm. right? And then out of that, growing the children and saving the seeds from what he liked best. And he got mind-blowing diversity to come out of his onion, three onion Grex. And in fact, his three beet grex is for sale in sea catalogs it was so successful and so you can he developed that among other things yeah be careful though what because beets and swiss chard are the same family they can cross pollinate well that's true and i i was growing beets and swiss chard in the front yard and they cross pollinated and then i saved the seeds in the next year and they cross pollinated and before it took about five years, but all I was getting was Swiss chard. The beets had gone away. Well, is that a bad thing? <laughs> it, it was what it was. I just posted Peace Seeds Live, their website, okay. on, on the chat box. That is cool. PeaceSeedsLive.com. Well, you know, so if you really are into this whole learning how to save seeds from a really big perspective thing, and you want to dig deep into all the the roots of it in, in my generation, anyway, Dr. Alan Kepler is like one of the seminal figures. One of the others was Gabriel Howarth, who just passed away. 
this summer, which was we're really sad about. So we're getting to that point where, and Toby Hemingway, who was Toby's gone, a culture hero, you know, and the, the, we have to honor these people, but look them up, get their books, read their stories. Now we can, I think you can see Alan Capular, and as he's lovingly called Mushroom, that's his his nickname. You can see YouTube's of him, and you know we're we're into this era now where we used to have to you know sit up way late at night at conferences to get somebody to open up and talk to you about these kinds of things. Right now, you just go to YouTube and see see this stuff. It's really yeah, exactly yeah. Well, Mister McDorman, thank you so much. This has been amazing yet again. I yeah. uh, love hanging out with you this way, and hey, yeah. thank you. Thank you, everybody, for coming on. This is, yeah. and keep asking questions, you know, and remember the only really important questions are the ones you're almost embarrassed to ask because they only apply to you. Right. Gardening, that is the most important thing. What's going on in your yard for you at that time? And a lot of people don't ask gardening questions because of that. They're embarrassed. They go, well, this won't have any relevance to the program or to anybody else. And on this program, we say bullshit. Those are the questions we want. Those are the ones we answer because we know those are the most important ones. Yeah. That's what gets us all down the road. And that's how we learn. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for asking your questions. Yeah. Janice said last night, the only stupid question is the one you don't ask. Wow. That's yeah. That's a summarized. We can go out on that. Yeah. (laughs) Hey. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for being here. And we will see you next month. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit denalicanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.